Welcome to the latest edition of Earth the Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. This is the second half of our April show, our reviews edition. Lucy and Jeff discuss and compare the different versions of Pet Cemetery. In case you were wondering, no, I wasn't there. After that, we're off to the movies for our reviews, which this month are Shazam, Hellboy, hmm. oh, and Mel Gibson in Dragged Across Concrete. <laughs> Thanks. We then finish with our brief reviews. What else have we been watching? Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, that said, lads... These two are combining in an odd way in real life. The new Brexit leave date is set for October 31st. Yes, on this Halloween, the Flat Earthers take bat control. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. If Jeff puts out any more jokes like that, I'm asking for a pay rise uh, to get some earplugs. (laughs) My name is Neil and I just like films. Joke, you call that a joke. Brexit, is it due to happen on the day the DFS sale ends? Now that is a joke. Sorry, Crocodile Dundee. Very funny, Neil, although I had to explain it. Let's start with something that is awesome this month. (laughs) Most of your jokes need explaining. Let's start with something that is awesome this month. We have been nominated in the listener section of the British Podcast Award. I bet Kermode and Mayo aren't worried about that. (laughs) Maybe not. But who are they? It's a real honour for us to be nominated. Thank you to whoever did that, and a big thank you to Lucy for letting us know all about it. I must admit, we've come a long way in just over a year. Initially, it was just us, one mic and a kitchen table. I didn't think anyone would want to listen to Jeff's ramblings and being contrary whenever he could get away with it. In fact, I am sure he gets the same reaction from listeners as they do when listening to Smog. They just hold their head in their hands. Perceptive as always, Neil. Although for once, I must agree with Jeff. It has been a real honour to be nominated and a huge thank you to everyone who has voted for us. Okay, we have a very busy show, so let's go for it. First up, let's find out from Lucy, what is the state of the movies? Be worried, Graham, as it looks like things have returned to normal and Jeff and Lucy are going to talk horror. As long as they don't have to watch them, they can talk about whatever they want. This month, Lucy and Jeff talk about the different versions of Pet Cemetery and decide which one is the best. If I remember rightly, Graham, we offered to go with Jeff to a pet cemetery, well, a pet crematorium, but he refused. He can't say we're not up for a challenge. Okay, let's go over to Jeff as he and Lucy start talking Stephen King. Hi, Lucy. Welcome back to the show. Now, after a pleasant couple of months' diversion into politics, we return to horror this month in the first of a short series about certain aspects of Stephen King's work. As a starter, what better than to compare the various versions of Pet Cemetery, his most cheerful book, and the book that King says scares him the most, and we try to work out Which version's the best? If you've not seen the new version, or indeed even the old version, there are major spoilers ahead. Okay, you up for the challenge on this, Lucy? I think I am, yeah. I think I'm ready. Excellent. So I'll just give a brief synopsis. Lewis Creed's a doctor, works in Chicago. He's fed up with the pressure of the work there and wants to move 
to small town environment. He picks Maine, which is a really bad move. That's like picking Cornwall in this country. He uh, moves his family, which is his wife, very young son, and his daughter, to this small community in Maine. Unfortunately, while his job is as restful as he thinks it will be, the place where they live isn't. It has a major road with all sorts of trucks steaming down it because it's close to a big factory. There are other things at the back of the house. Now, I don't want to give too much away at this stage because if you haven't seen it, that'll give give you a bit of a clue. But let's just say this gets mad very quickly. Fair enough, Lucy? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Good synopsis. Thank you. Graham and Neil, please feel free at any point to add the benefits of your knowledge on this subject. Okay. Thank okay. you. We cool. will. Yep. Yep. yep, that's fine. I thought that silence was it. No, right. we, we used to have a pet. <laughs> I've been to a cemetery. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I can put I can put the two words together. Don't okay. you worry. So I just want to set lay out the basis of this discussion. Lucy, you've seen the new version recently? Yep. You've read the book recently? I have, yeah, I just finished it the other day actually. It's been a while, I believe, since you watched the old version? Yeah, it's been a couple of years, but I have tried to refresh my memory as best as I can. Okay. Well, I've not reread the book, but I have watched the old version and I've listened in part to the Radio 4 version that was on well, quite a few years ago now. I haven't got through it all yet, but it's still pretty good. So I think between the two of us, we can cover all things Pet Cemetery. Yeah. So, so let's go right up to date. Lucy, what do you think the merits are of the new version of Pet Cemetery? Yeah, I think it does have some merits just to sort of go into it uh, very vaguely to start. Um, I think there's been a lot of criticism around it and I can understand why. However, I do think there was some really great acting across the board, particularly from Jason Clark and Jette Lawrence, who played uh, Ellie, the, the, the girl who inevitably comes back and she's not the same as the trailer suggests. I thought her performance was especially good, but I will go into why I was disappointed by that change later on. However, she did what she could do with the script. I thought it was good. I thought the jump scares were effective as well. I actually got caught out a few times and I thought it was a genuine kind of like shock fest. It was a lot of fun, especially on the big screen with the crowd. It was nice to kind of have that environment. The thing that scared me the most was Rachel's sister. I don't know if this got you as well. The way they kind of showed spinal meningitis in the film was very terrifying and probably scarier than anything else in the actual film. I thought the kind of contortions and stuff were like yeah. really awful. That probably was the standout thing for me, actually. And it's a strange thing to say, given it's not a central theme of the actual film. Those scenes where she's haunting Rachel that I was like, oh man, I'm uncomfortable. So that was very, very well done. The spinal meningitis uh, thing I thought was interesting. I thought in both films, it's a very uncomfortable thing to watch. But I thought yeah. in the new film, they went too far by making her guilt. In the new film, she accidentally kills her whereas yeah. she doesn't in the original film and in the book. Because the guilt is meant to be unconscious. It's something she couldn't do. But in the new version, that guilt is there for a real reason. She did cause her death. I think that's one thing I'll probably disagree with you on. I actually thought it was good. In, it was like, nice to see Rachel's trauma more than, than Lewis's trauma, because I think he kind of suffers a lot in the aftermath, the events that he puts himself through. So it was kind of nice to see, you know, Rachel go through some harrowing stuff as well. I don't know, it's just the kind of creepy visual elements to it. I thought that was very strong. Probably the standout thing for me, even though that, like I say, it's not a central part of the plot line. It just, it just worked. 
I just thought it was really cool. And I, I kind of like that kind of, oh, you caused this. It's like, oh, dear. <laughs> and it's going to all go downhill from here. How does that play out in the book? Strange, because she just sort of, she has occasional flashbacks and she talks to sort of Lewis about the guilt she felt about not being able to help her and stuff. But it's not as kind of explicit, really, compared to everything else. The book's a bit of a slow burner, to be honest. It doesn't have the kind of massive impact that the the film does because obviously you have a lot less time to play with so it's, it's kind of just alluded to throughout the book as kind of like a tension builder really it's nowhere near as graphic as it is in the films so let's return to the new film anything else in it you yeah. thought was particularly good to call out i thought the ending though again we'll get into this i wasn't keen on the changes i liked the end shot i thought that was pretty cool yeah, yeah, how yeah. they're approaching the kid kind of going to make him one of them like one of the resurrected well, it was a nice way to end it it was kind of that sort of sinking feeling i guess okay we definitely uh, will get on kind of that because i hate wrong hated thing that. to do obviously uh, however it's not as impactful as the original i will i'll definitely say that let's talk about the ending because this is where i think it broke the rule in and again, I'll rely on what's in the book mm-hmm. and, and your guidance on this. You have to bury and you have to have a connection to what you bury in the earth beyond the pet cemetery. In the book and also in the the original 1989 film, you were given a strong inference that what was coming back in those bodies was a demon of some description. Yeah. Um, because the story they cut out from this new version was the guy, was it after World War Two that they brought, that the father buried him up there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I guess the point I'm getting to is when they're dead and they come back, they have no connection to anything that's related to that person. That's so, very true. Yeah, so the fact then that he keeps going up there and burying members of the family, you, you can't bring them back. Uh, and that's where it sort of lost me a bit. It's different in the, the new one because... You know, Lewis does end up burying three uh, members of the family, so his cat, his son, and his wife, by the end of the book. However, that's not them, you know, in their sort of transformed state, whereas in this, they're trying to kind of kill each other, bury them, bring them back, and form a cult of sorts. And I can understand why that might not work, to be honest, because, you know, they're they're not the same anymore, so why would they want to do it? The motivation seems a bit odd. I think the house has a lot of positives beyond that. And I think at the beginning that they're so naive, they're just happy to have this place with all this land and stuff that they just completely disregard that. And yeah. that, that actually leads to their downfall. So that, that could be kind of a cautionary tale, I guess. Well, if you look at it that way. Yeah. And, and this is where the main influence of this thing comes in, which is the monkey's paw. Uh, yeah. you, do you, you know the story of the monkey's paw? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. very famous. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let me bear with me, Lucy. Lads, do you know the story of the monkey's paw? No. So the the point of the monkey's paw is you can have whatever you wish for, but whenever you wish for something, there's a downside to it. So, for example, this old couple get this monkey's paw from this junk shop and they wish for money. Their son works in a factory and he falls into the machine and he's horribly mangled, but they get the insurance money. Yeah, I, I bet they chuckled. It's um, a moral device. Yeah. Okay. So th- so then they bury the son. The mother becomes more and more distraught that they've caused this. So she gets the monkey's paw and wishes the son was alive again. And then nothing happens. And they go to bed. And then in the middle of the night, there's a knocking at the door. And the father realises that, of course, the son was buried. So he's dug himself out of his grave. Oh, it's not the monkey come back for his paw. No, no, no. <laughs> and... He's knocking at the door. 
But he also realizes he'd have come back to life as he was, horribly mangled by that yep. factory machine. So he wishes, as the wife is reaching the door, he wishes on the monkey paw that the son was back in the grave. She opens the door, there's nobody, nothing there. So the inference is it could be anything that was going on. It could just be coincidence. Yeah. But the other part of it is be careful what you wish for. Is that fair enough, Lucy? Love that story, actually. It's very, uh, very brutal. <laughs> years and years ago, I saw it done as a TV play. It was really, oh, nice. really effective. And the other thing that King does is almost like a Lovecraftian horror piece. So in other words, you're looking at a story, but outside of that story, there's things in the shadows that you can't quite see. So mm-hmm. this I'm interested in, because I can't remember this from the book. The creature that lives beyond the pet cemetery and has this connection between life and death is hinted at as being a, certainly in the 89 version. In the book, isn't there a moment where... Will Lewis see something shift when he goes beyond the pet cemetery? Yeah, he does see a lot of things, but King's very clever in this sense because he doesn't tend to like just show you what's mm. going on. It's very much alluded to. Yeah. And I think it's alluded to in the 89 version as well, isn't it? It's not very explicit. No, that's, that's right. Less, In fact, mm-hmm. there was more in this version than in the 89 version. The, the less is more approach actually worked really well, to be honest. I do like that in all of King's writing, even something like The Dead Zone. Have you seen The Dead Zone? I haven't, no, but I must. <laughs> all right. so, well, the, the Dead Zone is um, essentially a, a thing about a guy who's in a car accident in a coma for five years, played by Christopher Walken, and when he wakes up, he finds if he touches somebody, he can see into their past or future. Great, great movie. Yeah, great, tremendous. Just, just, for the, just for the last five minutes, and it's very much like an episode of The Twilight Zone. The twist, which is part the way through, and I won't spoil the end anywhere near the end for you, but the twist is because by doing this, he shakes the hand of a guy who's looking to become president, uh, a brash real estate guy, yeah. oddly, oddly enough, yeah. written forty years ago. Who'd have thought that that could happen? And. Um, <laughs> And he sees him as the president who's going to press the button to destroy the world. What do you do if you've got that knowledge? And that's the whole point of it. And so you've got this story playing out in front of you, but there's hints in the background that there's like almost like a good and evil battle, if you like, God and devil or whatever. Devil's trying to always destroy the world, and God throws these things in to try and stop him. It's only hinted at, but it's just, again, like the Lovecraftian thing, it's just out of sight, but very clever and adds a depth to the story that yeah. you wouldn't have thought would be there. King is very good at doing that sort of stuff. So his book, 1963, where it's about uh, time travel. Time is actually a character in the, the story almost because time is always trying to correct itself and get itself back on the timeline. And it's like it's almost pushing the characters to undo what they're trying to do in the past. It's really... really now, there is a great Stephen King book, more sci-fi than uh, than horror, but really well done. Come back to this. So reading the book to the new film, what did the film lose that the book had? Quite a lot, actually, and it's it's very disappointing. Obviously, we have discussed that they decided to change, um, at, sorry, Gage's death to Ellie. I didn't like that. You know, I thought it was a lot more in fact, impactful having like a toddler die. You know, it's that kind of that moral decision to resurrect him because he's so young and didn't, didn't have a chance at life and all that stuff. It just worked for me better having yeah. the toddler die. You know, and obviously a child death is awful, but there's just something about Gage because he can barely speak, like in the in yes. the, the film and, and the novel. Have him come back in the book, and in the book he's verbal. He can speak in full demonic sentences, so that's terrifying. 
was very disappointed they left that out. And also the relationship between Judd and Lewis wasn't as clear in the new film either. Because in the novel, he's almost father-like to him. Like, they have a very father-son bond almost as soon as he arrives. He kind of looks up to this guy. For some reason, they put Judd and Ellie very close together, and I'm not quite sure why that decision was made. They were the two things that kind of disappointed me the most. That's interesting. Just met this old guy down in the pet cemetery. We had a long chat when we were down there with no-one else watching us. Whereas in the 89 film version... Judd saves Ellie and Gage wandering out into the road in the beginning, and that's how he starts to talk to them. And I also think it's interesting on performances. John Lithgow is a great actor, a great classic actor, but I just felt he's too sophisticated an actor to play Judd, whereas Fred Gwynn in the original is just brilliant, even down to, you know, to, to the main accent and everything there. I thought was tremendous. I felt that character Judd was much more believable in the earlier film than it was in the new film. That's fair. I, I liked both performances, but for different reasons. I felt like one of the things about the 80s one is it is very 80s. So I think when, when you watch it <laughs> back, it has dated a little bit. But there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's just fundamentally how people would look at it now. I just think in terms of the modern version, I think Lithgow did a great job kind of modernising Judd, I guess. So I don't have an issue with either of the performances, actually. I'm quite neutral on that. I actually think they did a good job with the script that they did have. In the original, when obviously Gage runs out in front of the truck and, you know, Judd notices this, I think that scene is a lot more intense with yeah. the kite and everything. And that that scene, he, he really shines in that one. But I think fundamentally that they're both good. It's one of those ones I don't really have a, a strong opinion on. I just think they were really, they were both strong performances, to be honest. I mean, the thing with Lithgow is it leads to a brilliant joke, which has always been there since the beginning, but, you know, really worked with Lithgow when he says about church, so the cat's named after Winston Churchill, you ever heard of him? And, of course, Lithgow's famous now for playing Winston Churchill in The Crown on Netflix. <laughs> so that joke is brilliant. Let's talk about Lewis Creed. I thought Jason Clark was brilliant. as He was as good in this as Dale Midkiff was as bad in the original version. Table could have given a better performance, to be quite honest. Bit wooden, you mm -hmm. <laughs> Clark is, is a great actor. You know, he is a really good actor. I think Midkiff's grief was very melodramatic and very overplayed, and it just... It, it's almost laughable, which yeah. is a shame, because it's not a funny story, you know? Obviously, of course it's not. But I feel like Jason Clark's grief in the, in the new one, that it was so powerful. Yes, when his desperation, his you know, when he goes to dig up Ellie, when he when he drugs um, Judd, so he can go and do that, you know, it's 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 intense. You yeah. know, I thought it was a great performance. He was a standout one for me for sure. He was obviously meant to be the protagonist, and I thought he was great. Hundred percent agree. I think that's one thing with the new version really scores for me. One character that didn't work in the new film was Victor Pasco. What are your thoughts yeah. on him? I totally agree. I think it was such a shame they left him out as much as they did because he's such a central part of the novel and yeah. I believe a central part of the 80s movie as well. I think, you know, his his warning to Lewis is so crucial and he, he appears several times throughout the novel. Yeah. So, uh, um, so Such a shame to have him rushed like that. Yeah, uh, I'll just explain for Neil and Graham who Victor Pascoe is. He's a kid that gets killed but keeps coming back and telling Lewis, look, don't do it. Don't piss about here. If you go beyond the pet cemetery with whatever's there, the repercussions are going to be horrendous. And of course, Lewis, Jason Clark, doesn't listen to him at all. But in the new film, I felt it was just bland. Whereas 
There was a real dark sense of humor to the Victor Pascoe character in the 89 version. You know, he was quite funny with it as well. Yeah, it didn't work in the new one. He was he was so rushed and so bland. And he was like, I think we had, what, one, maybe two flashbacks or something. Like when he was talking to, to Lewis, it just wasn't very strong at all. And he is the kind of the final warning look like, don't do this, don't do this. And it's it's crucial in the book. And obviously he ignores him and, and runs off and does it. Whereas in the in the film, he just sort of existed. And it was like, oh, okay, like, is that it? <laughs> Bit of a shame, because he's, he's great in the novel. I, I loved his character in the novel. One of the big differences we've got is Stephen King wrote the script for the 89 version, so it's very oh, closely wow, okay, followed. Right. The, well, that's, the... that's an important thing we should yeah. have mentioned. <laughs> no, 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 it's just... <laughs> but it's the same story, you know. It's, it, sometimes an author can be too close to a story, so when you're trying to yep. change it to a different medium... Mm-hmm becomes different whereas i think with this one they do the setup then their whole view is stuff it we're going to throw it out the window and we're going to change things around we're going to give you something you haven't seen before when they tried to do that as good as it is and i think it's a very well directed film it's certainly as as you were saying lucy has some really good um effective jump moments but it just goes off on this tangent that is just too weird. Such a shame because I feel like, you know, we've highlighted some really strong points and some really, you know, good acting, good editing, that kind of thing. It's just a shame that they deviated so far from the original story because I would have loved to see how they did the story correctly. Like if they'd had Gage instead of Ellie, all these things, I would have just loved to see that in a more modernised environment. So it was a bit of a shame, to be honest. You know, it's, it's a good film, it's enjoyable, it's a good horror, but it's just not what I wanted. The benchmark for Stephen King at the moment is It, and we've had part one out with part two to come later this year. And It stuck extremely closely to the book. In in fact, I'm missing some bits from the book that I would have loved to have seen there, but they are non-horror bits. In terms of the story, that is the book. They don't mess about with it. What they've done by changing the end of the book is try to be as nihilistic as possible so the whole family essentially are going to become this living dead thing. The inspiration for that is they saw the mist. Oh, look what we can do with the mist. You know, we can take Stephen King's story and we can really screw with your head by taking it to a level that nobody can think of. Even King said that he would never have thought of an ending like that. He, met, he, he accepts his, what Darabont did was brilliant, but it is so, so dark, dark an ending. <laughs> There's it, not a glimmer yeah, of hope. It only made shit by the fact they had a really bad actor doing it. And I think with Pet Cemetery, this remake, they've tried to do the same. How dark can we make it? You know what? It's funny you should mention that because obviously just finishing the novel recently and getting to the last page and everything, that ending is awful. You you would have thought Lewis would have learned his lesson by this point. You know, he's just buried his cat, then his son, and then he buries his wife thinking it'll be different, but it's not. And the last line is it's her reanimated corpse, sorry, touching his uh, shoulder saying darling. And that's it. And it just ends and you think he just hasn't learned. It's just, it's not going to go down well for him. It's interesting you say that. And, and again, the motivations in the film. Grief does funny things. Pushes you down roads you wouldn't think you'd go down. He's so desperate. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Rachel's uh, parents hate him. Yeah. You know, this could be seen as a way of kind of trying to redeem himself. You know, his entire family unit is just the four of them and the cat and that's it. So the fact that three of them have been eliminated by this point is awful. And he's just trying his best to glue things back together, but you can't mess with fate. And that's the overlying theme of the entire novel is you can't you can't mess with death because death is, is final. You can't get them back the way they were. There's always a price, as the, as the monkey poor thing says. And yeah, it's, it's just a shame that that wasn't done in the, in the, the new one because I loved that ending. I thought it was great. 
when you take a rational person and start stripping away at the rationality and showing them things that are slightly off kilter, there's no stopping where he goes because Judd had grown up with this all his life. He knew about this place, knew the limits, and knew the story, uh, which isn't in the new film, um, but is in the book and the original, of the guy who got brought back after World War Two. So he knew the dangers of, of trying to bring back a human. Lewis had come into this, he didn't, and he just pushed boundary after boundary after boundary. I've been thinking to myself since finishing the novel, like, do I blame Judd for what he did? Because it's like, should he have even shown him the stuff in the first place? He's a morally ambiguous character, actually. Because you don't know whether it's like, oh, that was stupid, or whether he was genuinely trying to do him a favour, you know? It's interesting you say that, because if you take both film versions, the characters Mm. are benign old men. They are the sort of people you'd like to have as a neighbour. Yeah, they're Mm -hmm. they're there, they're looking out for you. Again, because they've got that moral structure, they know the history, they know what they can do. And at one moment, because Judge forms that friendship with Ellie, that he decides, do you know what, we'll we'll stick the cat up there. What harm can come of it? Well, of course, he knows what harm can come of it. He stuck his bloody dog up there. And that's the whole thing with the pet cemetery. It's people trying to do the right thing, and it goes wrong. It's the monkey's paw. You, You hope for the best, you get the worst. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. One final technical thing, then, if I may. Yes. On the music. So I've listened to both soundtracks, and I'm a big Christopher Young fan, like his stuff, but Elliot Mm -hmm. Goldenthal in the original, I thought really captured. It's it's almost childlike the way he does it, Mm -hmm. but there's a real undercut of evil in the music. To sum up, Lucy, what's the best version of Pet Cemetery you've come across? See, this is a di- this is a difficult one because there are such significant changes between the two. It makes me divided. Like, I love the new one. I think the acting's great. Obviously, I've told you why I like it so much. The eighties one had a lot of merit. You know, it was so close to the source material. It had that great soundtrack. It had a creepy toddler, which you know, bonus points for that. So honestly, that you kind of can't compare. I love the eighties one. And I love the novel. I just wish that the new one had done what the novel did, and then I might have. They're both strong, but for different reasons. And I know that's a bit of a cop out answer, but they're okay. just too hard to compare at this point. Right. So I'm going to turn the screws on this answer now. Then compare those two versions of the film to the book. Which mm. is better? Uh, the book. No, no question about it. Yeah, I think it was it was great. So well written. You know, I just I had a great time with it. It was a slow burner, but once it got going, it really got going. Even with its faults, I think the 89 version and the faults of the 89 version are are technical. As it goes on, you know, the, the use of a dummy for Gage at some points and the cat being stuffed. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the cat was a bit too comical in the oh, 80s. One didn't yeah. work for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, my perfect version would be Jason Clarke. Uh, in the 80s version. That'd be great. With a CGI cat. With a CGI cat. I absolutely agree, yeah. That would have been ideal. (laughs) Yeah, so that's great. Well, thank you very much for that. So next month on our Stephen King discussion, we're going to talk about some of the female characters that King has made famous. I'm very much looking forward to that. It's going to be a great one. Excellent. Thank you very much. Cheers, Lucy. Thank Thank you, Lucy. Cheers, Lucy. Fascinating. I'm never going to see either versions, but fascinating. (laughs) Thanks, as always, Lucy, for an informed opinion and keeping Jeff's lunacy in check. Next month, there will be more Stephen King being discussed in this slot. Daily Bats, I choose you as Jake. Say my name so my powers 
for real. Say okay. Right? What are your superpowers? Superpowers, dude? I don't even know how to pee in this thing. This is proof of authenticity. Super strength. Electricity manipulation. Hyper speed. I'd like to purchase some of your finest beer, please. His name is Captain Sparkle Fingers. No, it's not. It's not my. That's not my name. On to our movie reviews, and this one is Jeff's Shazam. I always like a review month where we select a superhero movie. Is that because it annoys Jeff? Yep. It's even better this month as Jeff is the person who has to lead the review. That'll teach him to make me watch Mel Gibson films. Neil, what is Shazam about? It's a film from the DC universe and it's about the mighty but old wizard Shazam looking for a pure of heart champion to take over his powers. In 1974, he offers the chance to young Thaddeus Silvana. However, the teenager fails the test and is banished back to Earth. Present day and the now grown Thaddeus works out how to get back to Shazam's dimension where he manages to unleash deadly sins. Thaddeus starts his reign of terror Meanwhile, his life fading, Shazam gives his powers to troubled foster child Billy Batson. Whenever Billy says Shazam, he's transformed into a powerful adult superhero, but with the mind and outlook of a teenager. At first, Billy has great fun with his superpowers. However, when he realises he is the only one who can stop Thaddeus, the fun stops. Would our flawed superhero be able to save the day? Neil, I've got to be honest... It was all right. I mean, let's be honest, it's DC and they're always better than Marvel. (laughs) (laughs) Concentrates on a real superhero. It's a very 80s feeling film. Mm, Um, You know, it's something reminding me a great deal of of Goonies. It has a darkness to it as well, which I don't think many of the Marvel films do. But on the other side of that coin, it's very funny as well. It gets its story right. I'm just hoping another one of our review films this month, which I'm also waiting to see, Dragged Across Concrete, is as good. <laughs> I was very impressed with this. I went into this movie with very low expectations. Oh, as I did, yeah. The yeah. trailers were horrible. But I was immediately hooked by the unconventional, clever opening. Not at all what I was expecting. I was completely underwhelmed by the trailers. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's funny. It takes time to build the characters and... and Ultimately, the twists are quite nice, aren't they? They're quite well done. Normally when these heroes, and Spider-Man being the obvious example, get their powers, they immediately Mm. start walking up walls and firing out spider webs. But in this one, you had that funny sequence where he's trying to work out what his powers are, whether he can become invisible, whether he can read minds, whether he can fly, is he bulletproof? And I just thought they made such great jokes out of the whole thing. Yeah, and and as a kid, he has no idea what to do with it. Once he finds out what to do, he ends up sort of busking. And the irony of it all is, 
when he was given the powers, he was told exactly what each letter of Shazam meant yeah. and what power came with it. But he just didn't listen. There were some dark scenes in it, but I thought, you know, for your average teenage kid, they'd really enjoy yeah. it. But it's a 12, so people will be taking in people uh, younger than 12 point, because the point. trailers are making it look like a fun... This is why you're yes. all underwhelmed by the trailers, because yeah. it looks like a juvenile film, yeah. Yeah. and it's something it's different. It's almost a PG, isn't it, mm. in the trailers? We were all surprised by it. It's yeah. different to what we were expecting. Definitely. Do you think the performances helped in that? I thought the performances were excellent. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, well, Zachary, Zachary Levy, who I Z- Zachary, who sorry, Neil, I just thought it was quit Zachary Z- Quinto because oh. it's the only Zachary I know, so I assumed it you was. You stopped in Zachary, and I kept and- thinking, <laughs> I kept thinking, it doesn't look anything like Zachary Quinto. Yeah. Neil's comment to me as we walked out was, he was better as Spock. <laughs> Never say anything to Jeff. Exactly. You'll It'll never, all come back yeah, again. That's your Director Doyle <laughs> moment. I had one problem with uh, Zachary Levy. The two don't feel connected. When he's playing older Billy, he plays it like an older teen. Like, what's the first thing I want to do if I'm, if I'm yeah. this height? I'll go and get beer. Whereas Billy is more sort of 12, 13. His first one would have been to go to the toy shop or something yeah. like that. Or something less than sort of, hey, first thing I want to do is beer. Billy is sort of wary and defensive, obsessed with finding his mother and rebelling. He feels society has abandoned him. Um, And Shazam's just sort of being some character out of Superbad. Contrast that with the young girl who steals most scenes she's in, um, and her grown-up version is definitely still with her. There's definitely a connection between the two. That said, I still enjoyed it. And oh. also Mark Strong, a yep, good villain. Excellent. <sighs> Duh. Yeah. Not yeah. doing anything, ever. Yeah. And he pantomimed it up quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, he, he, yeah. he was quite silly and quite fun. And, yeah. Uh, uh, but he had a good motivation and backstory, which I always like with a villain. He can't just yeah. be evil for evil sense. He'd actually been denied his, his, his way out of a horrible family, and uh, he was quite motivated to become super evil. And then the first thing he does is destroys his older brother, who yeah. constantly beat him up. And, and his father. Which a, was a father's, quite... His father's company. Yeah, it was yeah. quite shocking, that scene. That was, and, yeah. And his father, played by the excellent John Glover, yeah. uh, you know, from such films he's seen in the past as Gremlins 2. Great, great villain. And all the young actors, Neil, you said about Faith Herman, add Grace Fulton to that, Jack Dylan Grazer. You know, great performances. So when yes. you've got... Yes. See, you've, you know, you've got a director that's got to work on something that's much lower, about half the budget of a normal superhero film. Absolutely, yeah. You've got a great cast... And if you can get that script right, and I think they do, and we'll come on and talk about that in a bit, I think you're on a winner. I, I think that the director should be actually praised for this because he yes. did a really good job with a very young cast. He kept it fun. He made sure that it was light. The kids, I thought the direction was excellent. Yeah. Really kept I like the, the way the characters were all developed, yes. weren't they? Even the, the kids, they yes. you had something there to, yeah. to understand. And then the build-up to Act 3 was done nice and slow, and Act 3 was extremely good. Let's talk about that. I mean, David Sandberg, the director, and I'd like to compare this to Captain Marvel, a film, as you know, that I didn't particularly like. Oh, God. Here we um, go. But Sandberg comes from a background of low-budget horror movies like Lights Out and Annabelle Creation. Sandberg knows how to deal with things in a cinematic way and for tension. Again, he had a low budget, as I said, compared to most superhero films. One of the surprises for the film, which you don't get from the trailers, is how dark it is. And because his background is low-budget horror movies, yep. that 
he brings into it very successfully. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to be honest, he's skirting the lines of the 12A certificate with some of the scenes. I don't there. know how he got away with you, the... You um, mentioned once, the boardroom the scene. The boardroom scene was, was quite quite yes. chilling, uh, mainly because the way he deals with his brother first. And yes. I thought, oh, hang on, did that happen? That was yeah. quite dramatic and, wow, quite cruel and, and ruthless. Yeah, skirting the line, definitely skirting the line. It's a guy who's confident with the material he's got and, and knows how to improvise around things. Because it does look, with one or two exceptions we'll come on to when we speak about technical, but it does look a much higher budgeted film than what, what you see on screen. Okay, so let's look at the script and themes. Now, I think for me, and this is the other reason why this film works, is it is about family focusing in on something very realistic. Now, if you take the hero and villain part, and the villain in the very beginning, you see, as you said, Graham, his origin story. Had the two characters been flipped around, the hero could have actually been the villain because he would never have passed that test. And what happens is that when he does pass the test, it's almost like, I can't go through the rules of the Here it is. It's almost the Arthurian myth, if you like. So when he comes down, what saves him from becoming evil is the teamwork, the sense of family that's there that the other character, the Mark Strong character, doesn't have. Yes, it could have easily gone the other way. Yes. But yes, he was drawn back into this sort of yeah. foster family. And wasn't I think he? the reason he was drawn back into the foster family was because his own quest to find his mother, when he did actually find his mother, yes. that was the big switch. And he realises... That I'd was do- a hell of a Yeah, and very well done. Twist, wasn't very it? well done yeah. as a twist. And, did not and see quite, that coming. Quite dark, yeah. And it just... Uh, reinforces the the fact that he had a family already and he just didn't recognise it because he was convinced being in a foster home was only temporary until his mother yes. claimed him. And then he realises, actually, no, this is I'm in a foster home and I've got to make the best of it. And then that changes and that's the moment. And he realises who his friends are. Yeah, exactly. And he realises that the family is better than just trying to find yeah. something else that is, doesn't exist. Yeah. But there are many films that when a character goes through that arc that he's in quest for something that quest turns out to be false. It's not there. She doesn't want him. Yeah. That they can become quite dark and quite evil characters. That's a villain origin story. Yeah, exactly. The rejection, yeah. Yeah, and they pull away from it. And I think, again, very clever. Yeah, and I thought the the important point about that particular arc was the acknowledgement that none of what happened to Billy was his fault. He thought everything would be fine if his mother could just find him, but it wasn't. His mother wasn't interested in him. It's not Billy's fault, and that's reinforced when he meets his mother. It's a superhero film, as we've said many times. I have to keep repeating it because I keep saying I like it as well. <laughs> um, visual effects are really important in this type of film. What did you think, Lance? I thought overall they were okay. There was a couple of ropey yeah. bits, but really on that budget, I thought they did remarkably well. There was a lot of flying. I thought the flying was... Um, it, it, it wasn't perfect, but no. I mean, it's a low-budget film. It, it felt like a sort of 1978 Superman. They made it fun instead. Yeah. So we spoke about Superman... But also, there's a lot of Ray Harryhausen, mm, particularly great. in the villains. A good point. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I like that. Yes, very much like Jason and the Argonauts in bits. Yes. Yeah. Visual effects were good. Cinematography by Maxime Alexandra works mainly on low budget. And yep. again, you know, Sanford, the director, has brought in a lot of people that he's worked with before. So Maxime worked for him on Annabelle Creation. He's also worked on a lot of other horror movies, The Nun and Crawl. Again, we come back to this thing of tone where we say a lot of it is genuinely scary. And if you can see now as we're building a picture 
of a team that has worked on low-budget horror movies. So not only in terms of script and knowing how to do shock effects, but knowing how to do lighting. So if you take that scene in the boardroom as a classic example, it starts off all light as a standard boardroom. And then gets really gloomy, doesn't it? Yeah. And builds to a shock effect of having somebody thrown against the glass, which you see from the outside. Standard horror movie tropes really works here. Yeah, and uh, I enjoyed that all of the cinematography. I thought it was very nicely balanced, real world and the fantastical. Some very difficult bits to shoot, the uh, sort of winter carnival in the centre of a city at night. Quite complex thing to do, and I thought it was all handled really, really well. And I liked the, the whole look and the, and the set dressing as, as well was really, really yeah. well done. So going on to music, and let's have a look at Benjamin Walfish's score. To be honest, it's not one of his better scores. The theme in the film comes in pretty much in the second half, and it's okay, but it's nothing that I would call really memorable. I think he's done better work on Blade Runner 2049 and it didn't really work for me. Now, how did you guys think about all the songs they brought in? I thought the songs were great. Don't Stop Me Now by Queen was a great, great thing when he, when they did that. And also Eye of the Tiger from Rocky. Yes. Yeah, the soundtrack was good. <laughs> uh, I liked the spooky nature of the music when they were in the, the wizard's lair, as they called it. Jeff, and you know more about this than me. I thought it was a wee bit bland. Let's go to some listener comments, see if they've got something sensible to say. And we have three... So firstly, from Phil, whilst its greatest asset is its humour and Zachary Levy's performance, its weakest element is probably the generic story. The Shazam law related to his and his enemy's powers was brushed over quickly and the showdowns between the two aren't particularly awe-inspiring. It has a warm message about the family Billy creates with his foster brothers, sisters and parents. As far as the DC Extended Universe films go, Wonder Woman is still sitting top of the pile whilst this probably sits somewhere with Aquaman in terms of sheer fun. From Lucy, Shazam is not a brilliant film, but it's also way better than I was expecting. The tone is all over the place, some of the jokes are stupid, and it's super goofy. But it's a perfect film to watch for a bit of escapism, if you don't want to think too hard about what you're watching. I was surprised at just how much fun I had. Nice one. I think that's right. It is surprisingly good fun. You yes. Know, we all went in with low expectations and we're just all pleasantly surprised. And finally from Deck, the superhero tests are definitely the funniest parts of the film, which I think we've already yeah, yeah. discussed. Drags a bit after the halfway point, gets a bit too silly in the funfair, and I lost interest towards the end. Just think I've seen too many superhero films now. You and me both, Deck. Oh, we're starting to get a club Here together. We go. Yeah, so time to sum up now and move on to something that's not superhero, maybe like Drag to Cost Concrete. Um, <laughs> I wanted to like it, and I wasn't disappointed. Uh, it's a low budget, it's fun, funny in places, good characters, good twists, and it seemed uh, at least half the film was based on the foster kids and a boy who feels society has rejected him, which I thought played well, much better than just going superhero, superhero, superhero. Apart from being a little long, I thought it was a great, fun Kids superhero movie, well constructed, fine acting from everyone, well directed, just a good piece of work. It's not great, it's not going to win any awards, but if you want to have a couple of hours at the cinema, it's fine. It's an original, entertaining story, the shades of light and dark, because the background of the people behind it is really good. Best Zachary Quinto film I think I've seen of him outside Star Trek. You're never going to let that lie, are you? No, I'm not. And it avoids the incestual nature of the Marvel film. So all in all, really good fun. If you like Shazam, then you may also like these movies. Batman vs Superman, 
one of the greatest superhero films of all time and very dark. <laughs> Zack Snyder knows how to make these movies. Big. Another kid who ends up literally becoming a man thanks to magic, a career high for Tom Hanks, and nicely referenced in Shazam. It was very funny. The little reference was great. The Goonies. Now, in tone, Shazam has a lot in common with this 80s sit, particularly the bonding of the young group of yeah. uh, family. And finally, Kick-Ass. No one plays comic book villains like Mark Strong, and here's another great example. So, let's go from this review over to Neil's. the coast of Scotland. Something was summoned from the depths of hell. Something that would end mankind. And this uh, thing you worried about, did it show up? Oh, yes. You did. Out there, there's a fifth century sorceress... Who wants to bring down the curtain on London and the world? Great homework. Why do you fight for those who hate and fear you? You were meant for this. Out of the ashes, new Eden will emerge. Okay, I'd appreciate a prophecy with more relatable stakes. Wow, we must be getting near the summer season as we have yet another reboot. Is Ron Perlman back as Hellboy? No, it's a complete change, as instead of Ron Perlman, they bring in Stranger Things actor David Harbour as Hellboy. It's a shame they didn't bring in Neil. I mean, he's a dead ringer. (laughs) Although those horns could do the little filing. Back to the film, which is based on the Hellboy story, The Wild Hunt. 1,500 years ago, King Arthur and Merlin vanquished the Blood Queen by separating her body into six parts and secretly burying them in far-flung locations. Cut to today, where half-demon, half-man Hellboy, Harbour, is a key member of the BPRD, Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defence, who battles occult threats. However, unknown to Hellboy, an old enemy is planning a terrible revenge on Big Red and humanity, a revenge which involved the evil Blood Queen and the end of the world as we know it. Sounds exciting. Neil, is it that exciting? No. It's emotionally sterile. So much exposition. Um, and it only cost 50, only cost 50 million, so I suppose there is that. But no, it's, it's not a good film. I've got to disagree. Well, most of it, not all of it, Neil. Um, by the way, talking of budgets... That cost fifty million. Shazam cost seventy, so that gives you a area. Shazam as to is quite good. Uh, Shazam was excellent. Though. No, this is better than Shazam. It's rubbish, no, Jeff. This is what you lot have wanted all along—a perfect comic book movie. You could almost follow it panel by panel. Now Neil's writing that it's emotionally sterile, but then it's a comic. That's what they do. The big problem with this film, and why people call it the worst film ever made, and there's a lot of that on Twitter, because Del Toro didn't make it. And because Del Toro is a great world builder, he has levels. This doesn't have levels, it's all surface. But what a surface. No, it's not. I mean, my view is that movies should show and not tell. So they should show me cinematically what's happening. Hellboy, 
never stops telling you what's happened and what's about to happen next. It's just so much talking. And when I say talking, I'm saying that the script is a major problem. And it's here. not just at the beginning. It goes it's through and halfway through. through they'll do some more. And then it just, I don't know what they were trying to do. An excruciating amount of ridiculous exposition. Just like any comic, then? No, it's well, Of course not. it is. You look at any comic with a little panel, a little explanation. The Oh, look at those colours. Aren't they great? Oh! When was the last Jeff's, time you read a comic? Have you ever when read I was a comic? Six. Have you ever read a modern... Oh, right. This is what you imagine a comic looks like because you've never read a comic. I read it when I was <laughs> six. Let's look at the acting, then. I thought David Harbour as Hellboy was extremely good. Um, he was okay. No, she's very good. Good as Ron Perlman's performance. Well, Ron Perlman would have been better in this. He's nearly 70, I think. No, Harbour is an actor. I think Perlman is a great presence, but I don't think he's as good an actor as, as Harbour. Hellboy is. Uh, an actor's tools in, in of trade are a script, and he didn't have a script. Yes, uh, he all he was true. doing was great one-liners. His one-liners fell a bit flat for me. I just found it really, really bad. I just The whole thing was just... Uh, Unholy shambles. I mean, you can say that for a lot of the other performances. I didn't think Ian McShane added anything that John Hurt hadn't added. Exactly. Um, yep. Mila Jovovich was okay, but she was better in the Resident Evil films. I thought Sasha Lane was extremely good as Alice, fulfilled the potential that she showed in The Miseducation of Cameron Post. I thought she was brilliant. Again, excellent in The yeah. Miseducation. I thought she was the only good thing in it. No, her, I've got to two so far, her and uh, David Harbour. The other thing that's interesting... No, I think we already agreed he was rubbish. No, yeah. I didn't. Two no, against no. one. Yeah, but my vote counts for three. <laughs> and <laughs> Internal gerrymandering. Who's editing this? <laughs> but the other performance on this, and the one that caused a lot of fuss while it was being made, was Daniel Day Kim. Yes, and, the and Ed Skeen. Ed Skeen was originally going to play him, and then it was pointed out that actually this is a Chinese-American actor, so Skeen dropped out of the film. And to be honest, I think he dropped out because he saw that character wasn't going anywhere. More likely that he just read the script. Obviously, the rest of them had Well, we'll come on and talk about that, because what was scripted and what ended up on screen may well be two different things, because this had a very troubled production and it's well documented that the film was taken off Neil Marshall and edited by the producers. And it shows. It shows there are some scenes, which I think they filmed early, which looked brilliant and very well done. I'm talking about the one where he meets the Russian witch. I thought that was very, very dramatic and very spooky, and they played well together. And it had the feeling of being really well-directed and somebody who knew what he was doing mm. and then there were other scenes which were just very kinetic it's, it's, but it's funny terrible. you say that the whole russian witch thing was added in later on so yeah that felt much better than anything else in the thing so the whole maybe maybe the main part of the film was just a complete and utter mess in this hate fest that we seem to have going on here you're not you're super, saying super hate fest david harbour if it was a school report could do better <laughs> yeah no David Harbour has done better. He yes. was excellent in Stranger Things. And Sasha Lane was extremely good. Yeah. So are we agreed that that's the performance of the film? Probably, yeah. Neil? Okay. She's yeah, a yeah. sidekick and she stole the film from underneath the hero. Okay. Yeah. So we talk about script. We've talked about problems with the direction. 
and the and certainly with the producers. Let's move on to director. What are your thoughts on Neil Marshall, who made one of the greatest horror films of recent memory, which you guys will never watch, called The Descent? It's really unfair to say that this is a Neil Marshall film if it, most of it was taken off him and done by the producers. I think well, the that. editing would have been taken off him. Obviously, he directed, and I think, the, the, the direction. Again, I go back to the comic book. It is full and comic book panels. The sweeping style of a lot of the direction was really good. Pacing was good on, on a lot of scenes. But we, we'll never know because Marshall submitted a cut and we know that was never used. You can only go on Marshall's previous work, and I would look at films like The Descent, Centurion, his work on Game of Thrones, uh, his work on Westworld, and uh, I think he is Didn't a first-rate director. Didn't he do the Battle of the Blackwater? Yes. And look how epic that is. It is yes. completely cinematic, completely epic, and yeah, and none of this was. So obviously something fell down short. Yeah. It's a combination of everything, really. No? Script... The way they went about the whole film, it, it's just, why would you do it like that? Um, because the, he was going and, for a comic book sweep. But th- th- you've raised a really interesting point there, Jeff. One of the things that really annoyed me and really I found terrible was the giant battle where, he, where Hellboy battles three giants. Now, it had little moments in there which I thought, that's yeah. really funny. But they never connected together, and it was like it was very badly edited together. In fact, it was so badly edited together that I couldn't tell how many giants he'd killed. I mean, it starts off well when he shoves his fist right through the eye socket of one of the giants, and you think, oh, that's very Deadpool, this is going to be hysterical. But it just became really dull and really boring. I don't know why they think that heavy metal music and somebody getting thrown across a field is edgy because it wasn't. It just became annoying. It was so badly put together. But I yeah. say I come back to you and say this is a perfect comic book movie because it looks like it's moving panel to panel, and comic book geeks like heavy metal music, so it gives them everything they want. And we'll talk about the score aspect of that later on. It obviously didn't give comic book fans all they want because it's had nothing but bad reviews online. Let's turn to Neil, and I think Neil is a perfect example on this, right? Neil. I think you. I think I'm fair in saying you're a big Guillermo del Toro fan. Absolutely, yeah. and because he didn't direct it, because this doesn't have the level of depth and one and two, you don't like it. I don't think that has anything to do with it. I really, really, really wanted to like this film. I was looking forward. I said to both of you, I want to review this film. And what the real disappointment is that it is just boring. I just couldn't find anything to latch onto to say, yeah, that was really good, that was really good, because it wasn't. I just couldn't get into it. I just sat watching whatever it was on screen that didn't work for me. And it may be it's just not working for me. I mean, maybe it worked for you because, you know, you're the person who'd probably disagree with me if I said it was Thursday. I just checked then if it was Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) You'd say it was Tuesday, but I don't think it's that. I just couldn't latch on to anything. Hellboy desperately wanted to be Deadpool, but in execution, it's much closer to Suicide Squad. You know, it was really, it's cynical and unfocused and clearly thrown together from a production that's in crisis yeah you have to wonder what it would be like if it had been in the mcu let's look at the script so the script was taken from the wild hunt it yeah. was a proper hellboy comic and yet loads of other comic book films many of which have been in the last five years ten years have managed to take comic books 
and put them into really decent films. And this one just failed spectacularly. Uh, this is a retreat back to the 80s and 90s for me. We had this discussion in the um, the short we did way, way back, over a year ago, called Comic Book Flops, where we went back and looked before the MCU to see why so many comic book movies failed. Comic books are all about snapshots in time, a bit of kinetic energy caught in a moment in a panel, Right. That is not a cinematic experience because cinema moves and progresses and evolves and things transition from one to the other, which doesn't happen in comic books. So it's that that's the cinematic quality. And he just did not get the cinematic quality at all. Now, he's a great director and I really think they chopped it up too hard in the the over-edited it and it lost its flow. Okay, you make a really good point there about looking back to the certainly the nineties yeah. movies, and a film that this reminds me of greatly is Spawn. Oh God, right, yes. Now I quite like Spawn. It was all right. It's very adult in its themes. Yeah. It again moved like a comic book, panel to panel, as this does. I think it's more closer to Tank Girl, which no. which was a no, terrible tank, movie. Terrible. Tank and Girl, Tank Girl, no, no, tank Girl the comic is fantastic. I, I could not sit here with my poor soul and defend <laughs> Tank Girl. <laughs> that that would be too much even for me. But I yeah. can defend this because this is uh, this is why I don't understand all the hate, unless of people like Neil, who are big Del Toro fans, because this isn't that film, this is the comic books. Now, what I'll say against that is, and this is the writer, Mike Mignola, Mignola, yeah. thank you, um, said, in the first two with Del Toro, he worked extensively. You know, did a lot of scripting, did a lot of how the worlds were going to look. He didn't spend five minutes with Neil Marshall. So Marshall that had gone to the comic and used that as his source without digging down any deeper. Yeah, I think so there's we, a there's we could probably try and argue who was at fault for this, whether it's the producers, whether it's the whoever it was who put it out. Was it Warner Brothers? Yeah. Um and and whether it's director or script or or original comic book creator. I don't think we'll ever get to the back bottom of that. I think this one will just be buried and ignored. I mean, it was put out between Captain Marvel, Shazam and Endgame yeah, it's, to it's hide top. it and see if we could get a few more people in there on the back of a three yeah. super good superhero movies. Certainly the Shazam, putting that in there, was a, a clever move, trying to get more people into the cinema, knowing that you know people's yeah. people's minds are on superhero movies so gets Shazam in there but putting yeah this in there was was stupid it was it was too like the originals they tried to do the originals with some extra edge and a bit of this and that and it just didn't work yeah it didn't need it i mean they, they had over the top gore excessive swearing bland great. rock music and an r rating that doesn't but a great that doesn't Brexit make, joke <laughs> that doesn't make it a, a an edgy reboot no. i mean it just makes but, it the problem, and again, I come back to this panel by panel, but when you get to the end, when the dead rise and the demons are out there ripping humanity apart in the worst possible way, I felt ways, no passion. Now that, I've got to agree with you, because it's working on that flat, monotonous level. And while it's surface gloss, and it's, you know, watchable, it doesn't engage emotionally. That I will agree with you on, and that's what Neil said in the beginning. We're on listener comments. What's Phil said about it? 
I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Neil Marshall's reboot of Hellboy is an absolute travesty. If Guillermo del Toro's excellent two films starring Ron Perlman did not exist, this was the only film version available to non-comic fans, it would have been even more of a travesty. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Phil. Just don't sit on the fence. So if the goal was to make a subpar B-movie with poor CGI and hang all of its attempts at fun on the repeated use of the British slang and colloquialism, then they absolutely nailed it. (laughs) So I think he might agree with myself and Graham. I've got to be honest, I think Phil's wrong on every level there. (laughs) (laughs) The low bar for everything to come is set in the opening scene. I think if you'd not had the del toro um two films you wouldn't be getting all these people on twitter saying worst film ever made yeah i mean hollywood films visiting london why do they always have to destroy a bridge what is up with that that's a stock thing every single time they go london bang bridge goes even in the new spider-man trailer tower bridge gets one of the best films of recent years harry potter the lot no no i think london has fallen um, oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm from North London, so I wouldn't go south of a river anyway. But you know, bridges are quite important. In this film, Neil, you'd be unable to go south of the river because yeah, it isn't there anymore. It isn't. No. Okay, then let's sum up. Then, yep. Uh, well, I've got uh, four words for it: gross, uneven, exhausting, and unwatchable. <laughs> that's what that's what I wrote when I came out. What was uh, that? In a word, gross. Gross, uneven, exhausting, and unwatchable. In a word, exhausting. Okay, I've got four words. Wow. <laughs> Careful. This is great fun. I wanted to like Hellboy. I I, I loved the original, obviously. You're just disappointed. There were moments, but just not enough for a film. And did you watch it while you were off your meds, Jeff? <laughs> Better than Shazam. So... Whoa, moving no on. No way. You enjoyed Shazam. Don't be just, you're just being controversial. Neil's going to give other films that we should watch. So let's yes. listen to Neil. So if you liked Hellboy. <laughs> really? Go see. Don't, don't be silly. Seek professional um, help. Watch the two original films. Yeah. They're significantly better. So the next review is Dragged Across Concrete. There's a reason I'm sitting behind this desk running things. And you're out there with a partner that's 20 years younger than you. Hey, Anthony's got a mouth with his own engine, but he's solid. I'm thinking about the kind of future I can offer my girlfriend. Pops is a yesterday who ain't worth words. Good heavens and praise be to him. Your absence was a weight upon us. Thank you, Mr. Edmonton. I don't like doing things with so many question marks everywhere. There's a lot of imbeciles out there. Start the party. This is a bad idea. It's all kind of candy. We have the skills and the right to acquire proper compensation. We have delivered on our listener promise to get Graham to a Mel Gibson film. And we settled down in what would have been an empty cinema, that is, without us there, to watch this <laughs> two-and-a-half-hour epic. Now, in this tale from cult director S. Craig Zeller, 
comes a modern visual reworking of the old-style Pulp Fiction writing. Mel Gibson plays a somewhat difficult policeman called Brett Ridgeman. Brett, along with his partner Anthony, played by Vince Vaughan, are suspended without pay for roughing up a suspect, which was filmed by a member of the public. Desperate for money, the two come up with a plan to rob a known felon after what they believe will be a big drugs pickup. Meanwhile, recently released ex-convict Henry Johns hooks up with an old criminal friend, Biscuit, who tells him of a big-time criminal who's looking for help with a big score. These four men, two criminals, two police, are soon on a collision course. Events, however, do not unfold as expected, and the criminals behind the scheme are far more brutal than anyone realised. A tough, hard-boiled feature starring that hard-boiled, but loved by some, actor (laughs) Mel Gibson. Graham, this must be your ideal film. Well, sadly, no, Jeff, it wasn't. It really wasn't. And I can obviously speak with some authority as I'm in a room now with the only other two people in the entire United Kingdom who actually saw this film. (laughs) We were on our own in this cinema. Jeff had to spend weeks trying to find somewhere where this was going to be shown. I can clearly understand why nobody else was interested in this film, which, funnily enough, is a disappointment because... In this film were some really good ideas. Yes. And Jeff's mentioned some of them. Mel Gibson was fine. You know, I thought he'd be terrible. He was probably the most interesting character in there. But this was just a mess from beginning to end. And the end was very far away from the beginning, I can tell you. (laughs) It was bloody hours. So I enjoyed bits of it, but... Mostly it was terrible. And this director really, really needs to go and talk to somebody like Thelma Schoomaker. He needs an editor badly because there were some great ideas in this. The heist itself, and it is a, a bank house movie, the heist itself was very interesting and very imaginative and quite well done. But it just took ages to do anything and there was lots of talking. And again, I go back to my old... Soapbox, uh, again, show, don't tell, and it was lots of telling, but not very much showing. And I was really, really disappointed when it came out. In the hands of the director who did Widows, this would have been absolutely bloody Steve brilliant. Steve McQueen. Yes, yeah, Steve McQueen, yeah. It would have been really, really good, because it would have been sharp, it would have been focused, it would have been full of really good characters. and would fully have been it. Edited. Edited, fully developed characters instead of the mishmash, sloppy mess we had. It was shockingly bad. Yeah. It, it's sad, really. It is sad. That's it was, no, 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 not was, for those reasons. It was overlong and started disappearing up its backside in places. Well, I'll never get over okay. 150 minutes back. <laughs> no, it, it is sad that Graham, unfortunately, has to mask his masculine love of Mel Gibson <laughs> by saying this about a wonderful film. And, oh, good you know, grief. You are knocking this film because there weren't many people in there. It's, it's a cult. I said cult, Neil, director. And <laughs> Zayla, you know, he had final cult. Now, now you know, you, you've got what you consider an overlong film. So what was Zayla trying to do then? Because I would agree with you that a certain portion of the front part of this film could have been cut down. Well, this is what Zayla was trying to do. If you look at the history of Pulp Fiction, 
in things like Black Mask magazine, the writings of James mm. A. Kane, their actions through the main characters shows the moral bankruptcy and the moral problems that these people had. What Zayla was trying to do was expand that universe. So characters that come in and out as supporting characters, he was given a background to, so you understood that beforehand. Now, did that work? Not completely. No, because no, it, did, th- it didn't work at all because I thought, okay, we're having a slow burn. They're going to develop these characters and we're going to, we're going to follow them on a journey. But really, the writing was so flabby. You didn't engage I, with I them disagree. early enough and I, you didn't want to follow them. Let me give you two examples which show that where, where you're wrong there. Number one, Mel Gibson's character himself, Brett. Mm-hmm. You got a whole backstory about his daughter being bullied um, coming home from school by the local gangs. Yeah. You've got the whole story of his wife, the MS. So you understood where this guy was coming from, the desperation he was under. No, no, I didn't get the... Really? I I did. The the title, Dragged Across Concrete, refers to people who've been unfairly treated in life. absolutely. He handles uh, one of his suspects roughly, right? And I didn't think... Really, in modern-day America, putting your foot on somebody's neck on a fire escape was that bad. No, it had done far worse Exactly. You see on the TV police officers beating the living daylights out of people with truncheons. That was nothing like that. And for that, he got, what, six weeks suspension or 12 weeks suspension with no pay? And from that slight incident, after 40 years, he goes off on a massive criminal activity. No, it's no, just, again, it, it just it, uh, and this unbelievable. Is, well, no, no, because you're talking about this backstory you didn't believe in, but that backstory was bubbling up. You could see the desperation he was in for his daughter, the desperation he was in for his wife. There was always that problem that he could lose his house because he wasn't getting paid for six to eight weeks. So, you know, you, you had the feeling that this is a chap that lived from hand to mouth. They had to sort it out. And he, for once, wanted to get ahead of the game. I, I was with I, I, that completely. I wasn't, I wasn't no. convinced at all. And no, no. And, and if you take oh, oh, that, oh, oh, Vince Vaughn's oh. character's motivation was far weaker. I just didn't relate to either of them. Mel Gibson's character is going to spend 40 years or so on the force. He was happy to get up and on the job waiting at four, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning for suspects to appear and do all that. And then suddenly he flips over. His wife's had MS for, what, six months? Yeah. His daughter's been beaten up. Did I didn't believe it. Okay. And I just didn't get that whole transformation, oh, we're just going to flip like that. And then, he had, and then he convinces Vince Vaughn, and that wasn't right either. I'd be quite prepared to say, see him freak out and flip out, but he doesn't. He spends three days in a car with his buddy. In three days, he really needs to reflect on what he's doing, and he didn't. He was still as angry three days later after sitting in the car for three days, which was incredibly boring to watch with one no, comedy no, moment. No, no, it was incredibly it was. boring. If they'd had an editor and it had cut down to... Two hours, one and a half hours. I think they might have got away with he, that. He, he had was some given, good ideas. He was given that option to there, do that. He there decided were some good ideas. He decided it. not to do that because Zayla wanted to tell this story in a particular way. Prima Donna, a bloody Prima Donna director. Oh, this is my precious baby. I'm not cutting. Yeah, it he for wrote, anybody. directed it. I, exactly. I can understand why he would be precious about it. He wanted to tell a story in a particular way. And this comes into, like, Jennifer Carpenter's character. You're introduced to this character 
what, an hour and a quarter into the film. She's just dropped into the film. You have no idea what she's there for. When you see one of these films where they come into the bank and somebody gets shot and that person is a secondary character, what Zayla was trying to do is expand that character. That character has a life. That character has problems. And but they could have done that for that character. But they could have done with that as no. she as she's about to be killed. She holds up the little baby shoe boots. Yeah, um, but could you give this to my baby? It could have done all. No, of that's that with, cliche. Neil. They could have got twenty. That's, that's, that is cliche. They could have cut twenty minutes at no. least from that scene alone. That, that heartrending scene, and and to to my oh, money, man. she should be nominated for an awards. Oh yeah, <laughs> that heartrending scene where she didn't want to go to work, and she's almost forced by her husband to go to work because they needed the money. Not only the impact on her, you'll see the impact on her husband. You know, his life is also destroyed in many ways because he forced her to go to work that day yeah. when she didn't want to go. So how's oh, that going to sit fault. with him? Well, it's no, it just no, doesn't not. work. It do- just oh, didn't it work. work. It, it's just I. I was there emotionally was, shattered by that oh, sequence. There was no reason to have the whole Jeff. thing in there, other than the fact that this this uh, actress was obviously available and they thought, OK, we'll put her in, we'll Whoa. write a new bit of the film. She's, she's no slouch, Jennifer Carpenter. No, she she's isn't. a really but good she's actress. Avail- yes, but she she's available, let's put in a big scene for her. It tacked no, on. And you, no, weren't, no, 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 you no. weren't emotionally devastated because I was right. sat no next to you and you were yawning. Yeah. No, I was not. <laughs> I yes, was you were. not yawning. Yes, you were. I was open mouthed trying to hold back the tears. <laughs> and the, no, Zayla never writes with actors in mind. That's Clearly. A, that's obvious. But he's very friendly with Vince Vaughn, so we brought Vince Vaughn in. And let's talk on these actors then, because I thought Vince Vaughn, I thought was really good. I mean, he's got away from the stupid comedies like the internship. But the sandwich scene in this between him and Gibson. I mean, was, I, I thought it was okay, that was funny. That was funny. Yeah. But, I mean, they yeah, put yeah. the mic right here to make it five times as loud. But, but it, no, okay. But but if you're in the car with somebody for three days, the slightest thing would an, would annoy you. I mean, Neil, you get annoyed with me after two minutes in a room. Well, so can you imagine being reason. in the car with? Well, for good know. reason. I, yeah. I don't understand. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mel Gibson. His role reminded me very much of, like, uh, Richard Widmark in Madigan, Treat Williams in <laughs> Prince of the City. Fantastic performances. Real depth to their character. Yeah. Jeff, right. okay. I don't even know where to start with that nonsense. Really? Uh, what? You've oh. seen Prince of the City? Yes. And okay. Mel Gibson was okay. Yeah. He was playing a grumpy old man. I thought Gibson and Vaughan worked okay together. Yes, I thought. But it's just over long. Why didn't they cut it there properly? Was, there was the makings of a really good film. Because yes. there were some very interesting things. There were some very interesting flips around. But by the time you got to that part of the film, you'd completely lost all interest in what the hell was going on. No, no. And, and this I really disagree with. I will agree with you in the beginning. It could have done some tightening. But from the halfway point where the robbery starts... You have no idea what's going to... I was on the edge of my seat for the second half of the film. I n- had no idea who's going to live or die and the what decisions were going to be. The last half an hour was extremely good. Yeah, probably. Well, I, I, no, the last hour, from the moment they no. went into the bank, it no. was really good. No. You didn't know what the, was going to happen. They had the bank raid, and then they had a huge long bit where they were being following in the cars, and then it started to get good. But even then, they had four or five... At times, where they repeated things, they were trying to shoot the tires out. Uh, 
which you knew couldn't be shot out because that we sequence knew. had been we, shown. We but knew. he didn't know that, so yeah, that's exactly. why he was trying to do it. <sighs> we didn't need it. It didn't need it. Of course it, it did. It there maximum was, suspense, was, edge of the seat. It was, was a Hitchcockian moment for me. Oh, it was not a... That's, don't, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. <laughs> no, wash, you can be wash your but, film yeah. fan mouth out. <laughs> <laughs> what with Detton? Mr. Dad, no, with a copy of Empire magazine. For God's sake, have some respect. No, no. Uh, sorry, yeah. if I washed my mouth out with a copy of Empire magazine, <laughs> the word Avengers and Marvel would remain inside. Yeah. Um, but, but it was nothing. No, Hitchcock would have had this as tight as anything. Really, would it? No, would I have don't. Been not the second half. And... I think Hitchcock would have been proud of the second half of that film. I'm not joking. I really do think. Jeff, that, you're that... just being a contrarian. No, yeah. I'm not. It's... Oh, right. It's because you disagree with me. I'm being no, contrarian. No, no, the entire world disagrees with you. We were three sad, lonely old men sat watching a film that had been in, abandoned by the entire audience of the British Isles. I mean, it was just shocking. Okay. What I'm saying is there is a reason and a very valid reason why this film has been a major flop. It's because it's only one person, flop. one person in the world liked it, and that was you, Jeff. It's not a major flop. Let me tell you, because in America, and a joint release went on to TV, it was a low-budget movie, so it has made its money back. What, yeah. TV picked it up? Was it Netflix by any chance? Oh, no, it wasn't. No, Video On Demand, VOD. <clears throat> right. I rest my case. S. Craig Zayler was trying something different. You know, I mean... I'm not, di- I'm not disagreeing with you on that. I think he was trying something different. He just mixed it in with a whole load of stuff that didn't need to be there. Yeah. And if he had taken out the the crap, yeah. it might have been a good film. Yeah. He it, had it, some ideas. As yeah. Graham says, there were some really no. good ideas in there. But it was it, it, shockingly it, badly it executed. that... I am sitting here discussing and defending this film. It is, the most, yes, it is, yeah. the most yeah, yeah, yeah. arguments being put against it are by Neil and, and Graham because he's blinded by his vision of Mel Gibson. It's just sticking Actually, every night. No. You're, you're almost crucifying it. It's a good job Easter's passed, isn't it, really? We could redo oh, The Passion of the Christ. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually said that Gibson was fine in it. You've uh, built up to this moment, haven't you, Gre- uh, Jeff? Jeff, you've, you've dragged no. me across yeah. concrete to go and see this bloody thing, no. and now no, it turns out no, to be No, you're cramped. making a squirm at the... Uh, at the uh, this is an extension of Black Mask magazine. Oh, it's not. Yes, it is. Lovely references to films such as Prince of the City, we've already mentioned, nope. Reservoir Dogs no. with the robbery, and no. particularly Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. No, All... God, no. All right, okay. Have you seen Stanley Kubrick's The Killing? No, I'm well, just... There, there we go. Hang so on. Well, I can say no for Stan- no reason. Stanley Kubrick was a master of editing, and no. this is what Stanley it Kubrick's needs. Stanley Kubrick's overrated. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, I rest my case. <laughs> well, no, I've already said that in the Stanley Kubrick pod short. No. Oh, I mean, this is... Jeff against the world. Sorry. Yeah, and it is, yeah. because I am defending the film. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? No, that you're not. against the entire no. world? Well, in, in your eyes, what I'm saying is, this is a minor masterpiece that you guys uh, uh, are overlooking because of prejudice. I am the unprejudiced one here, and that is just scary. I'm prejudiced um, to the fact that I had to sit for two and a half hours watching a film that could have been done in oh, an hour and 15 yeah. Maybe an hour and a half. And if they, if they put in all the twists and turns cleverly and intelligently and with some very clear 
uh, editing, it would have been a good movie in I, anybody else's hands, but not no, in this. That and in second fact, half of that film is as Gibson, tense as anything. Gibson you're could see have this remained year. in the film, and if it had been done correctly, it has still been fine. So, okay, I'm not going to win you guys over, but I would urge our listeners to really catch up with it. Let's sum up. Let's have the final comments. Graham, why don't you start with your book burning comments? No, and what I would just say is it was a wasted opportunity. Full of good ideas, but wasted. Really badly wasted opportunity. Should have been a lot shorter, should have been tighter edited, should have had much more gritty backstory and motivation. Just so frustrating. So frustrating. Neil? There were lots of good things. Um, Actually, it could have been a good film. Again, as Graham said, it was... There are several bits that were extremely good. The heist was extremely mm. good. The ending was very good. Um, the Jennifer Carpenter scene, what the hell were they playing at? Um, it wanted to be something the film couldn't deliver. Both leads are unsympathetic, and the yep. film tries and fails to make them sympathetic. So, and no one gets dragged across concrete. Which is it's really, metaphor, really, Neil. really disappointing. Yeah, it's but a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, but we would like to drag the director across concrete because he should know better. Everybody involved in this film is really needs to have a long, hard look at themselves and say, "How could I have done better? I should have done better." Next month, Graham is reviewing Avengers Endgame. <laughs> is something that's more suited to his. And palette. you haven't seen it yet because so don't we comment. don't do other. If, if because I, we don't do Shades of Grey. No, because we don't do other interesting films. There are lots of interesting, good films around which we don't review. And I've said it before. All of the films I re- well, apart from. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which I thought was a startling film. You were never really there. The films like that, you know, uh, colossal, things like that, which I have really, really enjoyed. Small, independent, well, well done films. Mainly female directors, but that's probably just a coincidence. But there's lots of interesting stuff out there. And we're not looking at it. <sighs> No, because we're just about to move into a summer season full of just nonsense. A summer season full of blockbusters. and uh, Blockbusters that are empty. And I don't know if you've followed the Twitter feed I recently had with Bianca Garner. I stand by the comments that I made there that the the blockbusters from the 80s were thoughtful and thought through. And today, I'm afraid, we get things like Men in Black International. Haven't seen it yet, but I know it's going to be rubbish. However, let's return to the film we're discussing. Mel Gibson, listeners, I hope you're pleased. Graham went to see one, and as you would expect, he dissed it as much no, as he I could. No, I didn't diss him. I said he was the best thing in it. I thought he was I very good. I thought the um, ex-con was very good as well. The, oh, the, 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 yes. the reluctant one, yes. um, Henry Johns. I also thought there were some lovely little things in it, like swallowing the key. I thought that was just... <laughs> and ripping his stomach out. And then throwing it up and then... Well, the thing yeah. was, he swallows the key, he throws it up, <laughs> he's got shot, and then he has to swallow it again. And I thought... And then they take his stomach out. And then yeah. they take his stomach... And I thought, the journey of that key was pretty much like yeah, my, yeah. my journey through this film. Lucy, <laughs> if you got this far through the review, and if you've seen it, then you would recognise... Nice saw. It has got some good stuff. It earns its 18 rating. Oh, definitely, yes. Um, And we just mentioned one scene, and the scene in the bank definitely earns its 18 rating. And, yeah, there there were so many good bits. It's just spoiled. Yeah, 
and, the, and I thought there was some really horrible graphic moment the way they treated the woman in the back of the van yep. when she needed to go to the toilet. I thought that was horrible. And that was interesting because we had this discussion after it of whether was she, she was in with part of it. And you I did. Still, uh, yeah, and I still think that somebody in that bank was working with them. But if it had been a better film, all of that would have become apparent or that paradox, mm. unknown question, would have been much clearer. Because it didn't occur to me. Although, Neil, you know. it has been a pleasure to discuss this film with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was a kind of open-minded about it as well. Not close-minded like others. Yeah. I'm not close-minded. If you put on in a bloody Avengers costume, Mel would have been it then, really. Graham a... and Ellen O'Hara would have been there like a shot. Two against, one four. So let's talk about our film of the month. Now, for me, it's clearly dragged across the country. (laughs) (laughs) You are contrary to the end. Guys, what do you rate as film of the month? It's got to be Shazam. Your film, Jeff. Yeah, Shazam. Okay. Even though it seems so long ago and I can barely remember it. Yeah, it says Shazam only because the other two weren't. Okay, so you're not doing any, if you like, dragged across concrete, watch these films then? Well, if you did like dragged across concrete, you should obviously seek professional help. No, um, you should. If you want to see films similar to this, I would recommend Reservoir Dogs, Widows, Prince of the Cities. I would. I would probably agree. Anything by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. No. Yeah. Pulp Fiction. I would say well, Reservoir Hateful Dogs. Eight. Not the Hateful Eight, but most of his films. Are. I mean, basically showing you films that like this that are done properly. Yeah. And on that controversial note... (laughs) Controversial? Let's move on to what else we've been watching. I haven't had much time to watch TV, so I decided to watch something from many years ago that I completely missed. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's very 1990s, but hugely funny. I haven't got to hush yet... Jeff says that episode's his favourite for some reason. I'll let you know next month. Can I can I just add there, Neil? I know you haven't watched it because your hair hasn't turned white yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I know. Also, Game of Thrones season eight. It's building very nicely. And Guava Island. A Stephen Glover film of about 55 minutes where a local musician, Donald Glover, rather than working seven days a week for the owner of the island's main industry, is determined to throw a festival for everyone to enjoy. Also starring Rihanna and Letitia Wright. It's fun and Donald Glover sings his way through each scene, which is nice. For me, as always, cinema, TV and radio. Now for cinema, The Mule finally caught up with this recent Clint Eastwood feature, a true story about an old man who becomes a top drug mule for a Mexican cartel. Brilliantly acted and totally absorbing. And of course, you may remember, we had an on-set reporter, so we found out about this as it was filming. Thank you for that. Despite his advanced age, Clint Eastwood remains one of the best directors around. Brilliant stuff. Now elsewhere, I've been catching up with films at home. Planet of the Apes. Watch this for an upcoming piece with Elijah. It was a fascinating experience to revisit the Charlton Heston original. It is designed very much like a Twilight Zone episode. No surprise to learn that Rod Serling wrote it. And it leads up to that famous twist ending. And to be honest, if I have to put a spoiler alert in here for that, you seriously don't watch many films. 
The film itself is very wordy and slightly overlong. Nevertheless, this is the science fiction of ideas, not the Star Wars or Marvel crap, which just are empty and vacuous. And also, this Planet of the Apes is completely different to every other film in the series, including the recent reboots. Also, far from the madding crowd. First time I've ever seen this 1967 classic and watched it for a radio slot. I was amazed by how good this film was. John Schlesinger's direction, Nicholas Rogue's cinematography, both are amazing. A fantastic use of widescreen, unlike The Mule, totally absorbing. Well, that is until the rather hurried and disappointing ending. On to TV. Veep, the final season. Now, if I was to quote any of Veep, Graham would be cutting it out, so I'm not even going to bother. All I can say is, this American version of The Thick of It, which is now sadly drawing to a close, is going out in tremendous style and is bitingly funny. I thought after Orangeman, this show would be topped by real life. Not at all. The cast are great, and the highlight for me is the comic creation of Jonah Ryan. Timothy Simons, simply brilliant. Then there's Mars Season 2. It's produced by Ron Howard for the National Geographic Channel, and it's certainly an odd programme. A drama about the first settlers on Mars, interspersed with interviews by such people as Elon Musk, saying how this could be achieved. Season 1 was a problem as the documentary footage was far more interesting than the bland fiction being played out on screen. Season 2's fixed that problem, I'm really pleased to say. The settlement is now established and the scientists find they're battling big business, which has plans for Mars. This time the odd mix of fiction and documentary really works and I look forward to season three. Finally for radio, Deadheading, an excellent detective comedy series from crime writer Val McDermott and starring Julia Hasmond-Halley. A murder in an allotment, who is responsible? And just what does that hilarious David Attenborough-style narration mean? If you can find this, I would highly recommend it, as it twists a standard narrative into something very unusual and very funny. Graham, over to you. Uh, this month I've been watching uh, a lot of old movies, and for light relief, I've been watching a lot of sci-fi on TV. So the movies, like Jeff, I watched Far From the Madding Crowd, the, the 1967 version, surprisingly good movie, really captured the mid-19th century country life of rural England, and I really enjoyed it. I was totally won over by the first ten minutes. Excellent, excellent film. Uh, you should really try and catch it if, if you can. I also watched Planet of the Apes, and like Jeff, and Beneath the Planet of the Apes in preparation for the future show we're doing with Elijah. Wow, what an iconic sci-fi movie, but... This has not aged well. I'm not talking about the effects, though they are terrible. It's the screenplay and the performance, slow and ponderous. Uh, character motivations are constantly changing. Very dodgy mission goals for the astronauts. Lots of running about and very little action. Uh, some of this is corrected in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And strangely, this is the movie I remember rather than the original. Moving on to uh, TV been watching Hannah on Amazon, uh, mostly good, a couple of filler episodes, but it's got a good underlying story and some fine acting. Did you ever see the original film? No, I didn't. The film's brilliant. 
Yeah, I think the, the film, it, the TV show goes along about halfway with the film and yeah, then veers off. it stops off. after about yeah. two or three episodes yeah. and veers off on a completely different one. Tark, yeah. Uh, I've been watching uh, Star Trek Discovery on Netflix. Now, I've been Titles buying slightly it. slightly wrong, isn't it? What's that? Star Trek Dust Covered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Our resident expert on everything sci-fi, yeah. This, <laughs> this this show, I've been banging on about this show for months. This is absolute blast. Uh, the Federation facing an AI bent on the destruction of all sentient life in the galaxy. So pretty high stakes. Spock's back. We have a family drama at the start. And well thought out time travel that is driving the narrative. Uh, the special effects for a TV show are off the scale. Series 2, episode 14, we had a space battle that five years ago would have been hard to do on a cinematic blockbuster. I'm absolutely loving this one. So, essentially, they remade Star Trek The Motion Picture. (laughs) (laughs) Dear, dear. Yeah. It was a lot less cardboard, I think. (laughs) Yeah. And then, finally, Game of Thrones Season 8 on Sky in the UK. After two years, it's back. The first show was a lot of scene setting and getting people in the right places. Interesting that these characters that we have invested so much time in just slotted straight back into the world and with great continuity. I also like the fact that there was no exposition. You were just expected to pick it back up again. Can't wait for the rest of the season. This is going places, I think. As for next month, Neil will be reviewing Tolkien. Jeff will be reviewing The Hustle. And Graham will be reviewing uh, Avengers Endgame. Yay! If only that was the end, (laughs) but I bet there'll be another hundred or so of these damn things. Yep. Yep. Secretly, I bet you can't wait, Jeff. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At the Flicks is in the can. So it only remains for us to say... Let's go watch Dragged Across Concrete again. Great idea, Jeff. That was a fantastic... No, it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Not even a Bristol burger will drag me there again. And to everyone else... Thanks thanks for listening and and goodbye. goodbye.